And I'm Steph. And you're listening to The Thirst, a podcast that looks at the latest in pop culture as well as dissecting some very important topics of our choosing. It's December 2022 and we're here with our obsession of the month. This is where we take a deep dive into everything from new metal videos and the best teen comedies to celebrity tattoos. You know, the important stuff. So this episode we're embarking on a 3,000 mile odyssey through the back roads of America with bones and all the latest genre-bending film from Italian director, producer and screenwriter Luca Guadagnino. We're also going to take a look at his filmography to date, from the first film in his trilogy of Desire, I Am Love, through to his reimagining of Suspiria. And this is definitely going to be a spoilery discussion um, of Bones and All, but also of possibly of the other films. So make sure you have um, seen the films before you listen to this. And we'll also add timestamps to the discussion in case you need to skip anything. So, yeah, how are you today, April? Uh, I am fine. I am very warm, which is a miracle given how cold it is here at the moment. So that's nice. It is like fucking beyond freezing cold at the moment um it's not very nice in england so i'm glad you're warm i don't know how you've managed mm, I, that I, well i could potentially be unwell uh, or i've just sat next to a radiator <laughs> for too long which could it be i'm in that peak like winter like am i unwell am i just too too cold so i've gotten too hot too fast i don't know i've just i've just necked a cup of tea as well so that probably hasn't helped Oh, well, there you go. I just ate um, a big slice of cake, which was the best cake I've ever had in my life, hands down, which is wild. But now I am also A, buzzing, and B, I have like sugar heat rush. Yeah. Like I feel quite flushed from all the sugar mm-hmm. because it was insanely rich. So um, this is going to be fruitful. I'm sure this will be great. Let's hope you don't crash halfway through. Oh, my God. Just like in the middle of a bigger splash or something, just... Yeah, just if my if my vo- my vo- my vocals if my vocals start to slow down, then you'll know the reason. It's because we're recording in the evening and I've eaten loads of cake. <laughs> right. So let's talk about bones and all. We're yes. going to talk about bones and all first, and then we'll have a zip through Lucas' filmography and kind of um, the films that we've really enjoyed and how we kind of rank them. I guess. Uh, so Bones and All is a cannibal love story. It's directed by Luca Guadagnino, of course, from a screenplay by David Kajanic, based on the 2015 YA novel Bones and All by Camille De Angelis. The film stars Taylor Russell and Timothy Chalamet, along with Michael Stuhlbarg, Andre Holland, Chloe Sevigny, David Gordon Green, Jessica Harper, Jake Horowitz and Mark Rylance. The film follows a young woman called Marin who lives on the margins of society, who meets and falls in love with a disenfranchised drifter named Lee. They flee together and embark on a cross-country journey across the American Midwest. However, despite their best efforts, all roads lead back to their terrifying pasts and a final stand that will determine whether their love can survive their differences. I smelt you. I didn't know I could do that. I thought I was the only one. I don't want to hurt anybody. Famous last words. So just before we have a chat about um, the film, a bit of background info. I think the thing that I find really interesting about the the sort of the production of this film is despite having 
Timothy attached, who is, of course, a massive star and a massive draw. And Guadagnino himself is a pretty big draw in Hollywood now as well. Um, this film was going to be really hard for them to finance and they were really struggling to find investors for it because of its subject matter, because it is essentially a cannibal romance kind of coming of age story. So Guadagnino and Chalamet, both who are both producers on the film, this is Chalamet's first production credit, they didn't want like a big studio on board so they sought out Italian finances and basically all of the actors involved in this film were willing to defer their fees so um, which made it a lot cheaper and a lot more appealing and then I think in the end it sent once the film had been made it got snapped up without having you know anyone had having even seen it so mm-hmm. I think that kind of goes to show that people there was a lot of um I don't know, good grace and generosity towards this film and everyone involved in it really wanted to make it, which is always a really nice thing. That is nice. Yeah, it's great. Um, It had its world premiere at the 79th Venice International Film Festival in September where it won the Silver Lion for Best Direction and it came out in the United States on November 18th and then we got it in the UK on the 23rd of November. Um, We've been... I mean, we've been waiting for this film for ages, haven't we? We've yeah. been, both been really excited. Very much so. I think it pretty much goes without saying on this podcast that uh, we love Luca and we've really liked his films to date. So um, what were your expectations of this film? Were you Were you very hopeful? So I was really looking forward to it. I was initially intrigued by the premise, the time period it's set in 80s Reagan America, um, which is a period of sort of time in American history that I find really interesting. Um, And also the fact that it's the location, like the fact that it was set in the United States rather than in Europe, which felt like Mm. a little bit of a departure for Luca. Obviously, I was really overjoyed that Timmy would be reuniting with Luca again. Obviously, we are extremely big Call Me By Your Name fans on this podcast. That goes without saying. So to the idea of having them back together um, just felt really nice. <laughs> like the gang was back together. Also, I guess the addition of Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, uh, who were doing the school, that just felt really exciting and really on brand for, for both of mm-hmm. us. Um, <laughs> And I'd really enjoyed We Are Who We Are, which we obviously talked about on the podcast in 2020, 21. I can't remember how long ago it was now. Would it have been during... I think it was during lockdown. during lockdown? Yeah, oh my first God, lockdown. yeah. So we both really, really enjoyed that show, which obviously Luca was at the helm at. But I was just... I don't know, I was just really excited to see him back working on film again. It's not that I didn't think that he executed his show well because I think he did and actually I think he brought a really Luca twist to sort of more long form television but it was just the prospect of seeing another Luca Guadagnino film that's something that we we're always really keen for so yeah I was I was um I was pretty hyped yeah me too I had high hopes I just yeah I do feel like this we were it was almost a recipe that was guaranteed for us to kind of love (laughs) it's basically a recipe for both of us and unless something went really horribly wrong which thankfully it didn't i didn't think i was likely to be that disappointed and as you say it's amazing to have timothy back with luca they've got a really nice working relationship the supporting cast for this is really really strong it's great to have david kajanich back who um has worked with luca before on a bigger splash and suspiria so they've kind of adapted stories together before written stories together so that's a kind of strong pairing as well 
you mentioned Trent and Atticus, of course. Um, and for me, also, you know, the, the kind of use of genre here. So it's like a, it's kind of pitched early on as a sort of coming of age slash horror film. Mm-hmm. You know, cannibalism's obviously yeah. going to have some sort of body horror elements. So that was really exciting for me personally, too. I think, uh, so I did a podcast with Evolution of Horror about Bones and all. And I think I'd said on that as well that my only slight concern, which I didn't really think was going to be a concern because I trust Luca, but was that um, the balance between sort of cannibalism and a love story, which, in you know, on first impression sounds like two ends of a spectrum. Yeah. Um, sort of one of society's greatest taboos and then the kind of high drama of first love could mm-hmm. kind of there was a risk that it could come off as a bit OTT and silly yeah um, especially when you know it's adapted from a YA story like I don't know I had this vision of like in the hands of someone else it would end up being basically Twilight well that was yeah that was one of my concerns as well was then when I realized that it was based on a YA novel I was quite taken aback that that would be something that Luca was interested in right you can do you can't really imagine him reading that book although maybe he didn't I don't know but um yeah just it's like two very intense themes which could either go together very well Mm -hmm. or yeah kind of be a bit cheesy so that was like a bit of a I don't know, a bit of an apprehension. But then when the trailer dropped and we had that like Leonard Cohen trailer trailer. and the cinematography. Oh God, I think that just put it all to bed really. And I knew that was going to love it. Um, Also, I feel like we kind of need to address the army hammer of it all. Well, I was hoping that that would come up, not because I want to do a deep dive, but because it, the timing of it was all very strange, wasn't it? Wasn't that so odd? Like, you know that they're... Luca and Timothy are not ones to, I don't know, they wouldn't, I don't think they'd piggyback on something like mm. that. And it doesn't seem like, I don't know, it would just be, I'm, I'm not sceptical enough to think that they were doing that. But it was, it was either incredibly good timing or incredibly bad timing. I just remember it was like, I think everyone was really waiting for either of them to say anything about it when all of the army hammer rumours and accusations were flying round. And then all of a sudden there was just the the drop of this, of the news about this particular film. <laughs> and I think I remember us having a conversation with being like, is this, is this a joke? There's no, absolutely no way that this could be real. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was a joke. I was like, there's no way they're doing this right now. Like, They must have been livid if this was on the cusp of being announced and then all of that army hammer nonsense erupted. They must have been like... Oh my... Beside themselves. Just so annoyed. Yeah, so annoyed. And imagine trying to... And I'm, I know people have. Imagine trying to ask Luca in particular about that in an interview about this film like I'm I would be too scared to interview him generally Mm. because he is a character but I I, I just yeah I have visions of like ill-prepared journalists going in and sort of daring to ask him about this army hammer thing and it going horribly wrong I wonder if it was probably off limits I wonder if they were told in advance. We should find out. We know people. We should ask this. Yeah. Was it off? Were you allowed to ask whether Army Hammer was um, ever thought of for the role in this in this film? Whether he could bring his own personal experience <laughs> to this movie? Um, no. You can imagine the salt that mm. would pour forth from Lucas' mouth. That's amazing. But um, but that was funny though, wasn't it? It was uh, just odd timing. 
very yeah very odd timing maybe they asked for some tips who Who knows knows? (laughs) who knows and also before we talk about our initial reactions i also wanted to point out the the lff experience and this isn't our this is not our first experience of uh luca at lff or timothy or timmy yeah which is amazing so we we managed to grab well, the, the announcement for Bones and All at London Film Festival came in really late, didn't it? It was really, it was a late addition. We, when the London Film Festival lineup was announced for this year, we were really, really surprised and disappointed that it wasn't in there, as I recall. Mm. Um, um, and we tried and failed to get tickets. It was a whole debacle, as anyone who endeavoured to get tickets during that period knows and then it was added as a late addition and I think between us we just assumed like oh it's going to be an absolute hassle like it's a Timmy film so trying to get tickets to see a Timmy film is always an absolute nightmare as we know from multiple Mm. attempts at doing it we have been successful but we know that it's a just a, a carnage um and this was a walk in the park I remember logging on by them and texting you and being like oh yeah I got them (laughs) Isn't it so weird? I don't know how we... It was clearly meant to happen. It was fate. Um, it was fate. It was, it was. I'm really glad. Yeah, I'm just really pleased we got to do it again. And of course, I think there were a bunch of people that probably bought tickets and then couldn't go because we got that slightly funny email weird like the email. day before reminding us that it was in fact an 18 <laughs> and that, you know, you'd need to bring your ID basically. You don't bother turning up if you're not. So I think there were probably quite a lot of young, disappointed fans. Never have I been more glad in life to be old. Right? Being an old woman pays off sometimes. It's brilliant. Um, and also we managed to time the red carpet again impeccably. Bearing so in mind, we were running late. We were running late, which was very stressful thanks to traffic. We got stuck in traffic for ages. So we were running late and it was like, fine, fine, fine. Just don't even think about it. We just need to get there in time for the film to start. Um, and Timmy was on the red carpet. Such good timing, Steph. I can't believe it. We've, we, this is the second time in our lives that we've managed to time it perfectly with him. I know. And they security, God bless them, just could not get me to move. It was hysterical. I just wouldn't move. I went ahead. I left you behind on the red carpet and I went inside and there was this poor girl who kept saying to me, like, can you go and get your seats, please? And I was going like, no, I'm waiting for my friend who's on the red carpet. And she just was looking at me like, is she... And I was going like, yeah, she's there. <laughs> yes, she and is. And then eventually she when you did come in, move. I was so smug. I was like, yeah, there she is. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. I was just trying everything. I was like, oh, I'm just standing here for a second. Um, just, uh, I don't know, just catching my breath. It's like, okay, ma'am, can you um, can you move? Yeah, sorry, I'm just going to check. I've got my ticket in my bag. Okay, yeah, can you move? Like, um, yeah, uh, oh, where's my phone? Uh, oh, actually, no, I'm waiting for my friend. And then after a while, when they were like grabbing my shoulders, like you physically need to move. I was like, oh, just remembered. Yep, she's already gone through. I guess I'll leave now. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, it was brilliant. Brilliant. Had a great time. Lovely to see that hair in person again. A delight. Just brings me the greatest joy. Um, and some fucking banging outfits as well. So we got to see the kind of Q&A at the beginning. We got to see Taylor Russell looking absolutely stunning. Just gorgeous. Um, yeah, just really, really gorgeous. Uh, and, then, and then we also got to experience that kind of classic festival audience reaction in real time to watching that film. 
which I think is one of the best bits of going to a festival like that. It's certainly not to listen to the sound of the film. Because, well, I was really hoping you were ugh. going to address this. And I, and I think it will come up later on when we discuss the, the plot more widely. Because every, every... This is the third year second year of being of going to the royal festival hall and second i think the the sound is just abysmal it's It's so so bad bad. to the point where we literally lost key plot points from this film on first watch yeah because the the dialogue is basically rendered inaudible in large parts of it i remember us watching succession the year before and being like well i mean good luck i truly cannot hear the pace at which that show moves i cannot hear a word anyone is saying no there were several lines when we saw succession last year where i wasn't convinced i'd heard them because the sound was so bad and then when i saw them in real time on the television when it was airing i was like oh that was real i just couldn't make it out properly (laughs) brilliant yeah couldn't make it out so sound abysmal but nice to um see that audience reaction yeah definitely in person everyone having a good time sort of experiencing the highs and lows together so that was really exciting Um, and then we watched it again in the cinema where as you mentioned we actually got to hear the film and yeah that was that was very useful um and it was great to see it again and kind of absorb it again um so let's talk about your general feelings about the film um i think we both came out of this feeling very positive but um what do you think of it generally um i did i really enjoyed it it really lingered with me a great deal i've thought a lot about the fact that the first time we saw it and I can't remember if I've addressed this with you, so it'll be really interesting to discuss it. The first time I saw it, I wasn't entirely sure how I felt about it as it went mm. on. So the sort of duration, majority of the duration of it, I was going like, mm, do I like this? Like, is this working for me? Until I think probably the final act of it where everything came together and I was quite moved by all the things that it was doing. Um, mm-hmm. What was really interesting for me is that I, our friend Claire... I had a conversation with her with her about when she saw it um, not long after we did the second time around. And she said she mm-hmm. had a very similar experience where she was kind of trying to find her way with it, like having a good time, mm-hmm. but not sure if she enjoyed it. And then actually was really blown away at the end of it. Um, mm. and, and then interestingly, I think the second time we saw it, that was the, the thing for me where I was like, yeah, this really, really works for me. And actually all of my sort of ongoing apprehensions, the first time we'd viewed it on second viewing, everything was working. So that was sort of, mm. that was an interesting kind of experience that I had. I I just really like the road movie aspect of it. It's I knew you would. Yeah, it's really Terence Malicky. It's really, really just reminds me of like Badlands. Um, yeah, so I feel much. like it really accurately captures the vastness and the beauty of that particular part of the United States. Mm. And then running alongside it, I feel like the, I guess the transient nature of their lives felt really well captured alongside that. Mm. I think there's so much in there, which we'll come on to about being an outsider, the ways you can exist as an outsider, as a marginalised person across any spectrum. I just think that score is so beautiful. Oh, it's so good. It's really understated in a way that I think isn't always the case for Reznor and Ross. No, we haven't like, seen anything like that from them for, well, maybe ever really, but 
Certainly not recently. It feels really starkly different, but also feels distinctively them, but then also reminded me so much of scores that are used in Luca's other films, particularly Call Me By Your Name, and that felt like a nice Mm. little nod. I think there's lots of interesting stuff in there, which I'm sure we'll unpack about the queer subtext of it all. And then also, I think my favourite thing is that, like... The origins of the the thing that everyone is afflicted with, or the select people that are afflicted with, they're just not, like, explained. No, no. You're just presented with it, and that's it. And that, for me, I just was like, actually, yeah, I don't need, like, what are the origins of why, you know, Marin is like no. this? I didn't need it. And I think that, for me, ultimately, is why I like Luca's work so much, in that he presents you with a whole world... Mm. And you're just in and you kind of don't necessarily care about the the logistics or the external outside things, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's kind of like a like an immediacy to it, isn't yeah. there? A lot of the time. Um and also Marin herself, you know, a key as you say, like a key part of this film is that Marin Marin and Lee are discovering themselves. Well they don't know, do they? They don't know they don't know that you know their lives are essentially a blank especially Marin's like memory and her you know her growing up her childhood her background mm. her mother is all yeah. just a blank space Absolutely. so why would we as the audience be told anything more than what she knows so exactly. but yeah exactly. it doesn't yeah it doesn't try and fill in the gaps no. of something that's actually not that important either no. like I don't need we it. don't need to know no, we don't, don't need, need to know why this is happening or why there actually seems to be quite a few eaters existing yeah. <laughs> in the world like there seems to be quite a lot of them um and we just don't need any of that backstory no not at all and i think that's what i just thought that worked so well so yeah ultimately i like i just i i did have a good time with it i think i definitely felt quite shell-shocked that first time we saw Mm. it um Mm -hmm. in a way that i think definitely took me a while to get my my head around so i I don't know Mm. how you sort of felt especially Mm. compared to sort of first viewing and then second viewing our friend Mike described this film as like Steph Bingo, which is unfortunately <laughs> very true. Yeah. So um, I was sort of deeply biased anyway. So I I did love it even after my first watch. But I think you're right in that it came together even more for me and kind of cemented my viewpoint on yeah. second watch yeah, when definitely. I felt a little more balanced, less biased perhaps in mm-hmm. my approach. Um, and But yeah, it sort of... That shell shock reminds me of the kind of feeling we had coming out of Suspiria as well. Um, yes. And how, uh, although I think that shell shock never fully left me um, because I think there are flaws with that film. But but yeah, I totally recognise that. And I think with this also, it's sort of the first time that, to my mind, it's the first time that we see Luca really playing with like multiple genres, really. Mm, yeah. But there's quite a lot at play here that's mm-hmm. being balanced. Um, and it's a film that's very gentle as well as being very violent and that it sort of has that physical intensity mm-hmm. and then that emotional intimacy mm-hmm. and you've got all these sort of competing and connecting states. Yeah of sort of attraction and repulsion and love and horror. And then, as you say, like road movies, cannibal movies, coming of age stories, romance. There's just like loads and loads. There's a lot going on here that has to be kind of interwoven. So it's almost like, I think it's, you need a couple of views to kind of make up your mind as to whether you think it works. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like 
I immediately recognised how tender it was that first time we watched mm. it for a film that is essentially focused or or revolving around like violence in varying different forms. Definitely. And I think that juxtaposition, I think, is perhaps what I not struggled with initially, but just maybe couldn't mm-hmm. get my head around. And then the second sure. the second time we saw it, I I felt like actually these things marry so well throughout. You can see the commonalities with his mm. other work, yeah. even though it's it's the sort of film that it's exactly what I'd expect from Luca, but also not like his other films. Absolutely. So it's not a repeat of the success of Call Me By Your Name. No. It's not another horror akin to Suspiria. I think it is very different. Mm-hmm. It's so, sort of almost a melding of the two but also not mm-hmm. um and it has his kind of like trademark emotional and physical intimacy and that intimacy between two young lovers mm-hmm. but also yeah is kind of presenting those themes in an entirely new way and it i i really like that it's sort of like his other works it kind of deals with displaced characters or people that are finding themselves and are finding a way to belong and with familial relationships and sort of you know adolescence versus adulthood and all of that kind of thing so it the more I thought about it 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 made sense as a like as a subject matter that he'd want to tackle and of course he's fascinated with the body yeah whether that's kind of you know, sexual relationships or like physical, you know, bodies on sun lounges or whether it's literal body horror. So it all kind of, it does kind of come together in the end. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that one of the things I know we initially discussed is there is a as a couple of lines, a couple of things in the film that Lee says that almost immediately reminded us of things that Elio or Oliver say yes, in Call Me yeah. By Your Name. And, and, and I think for me, in terms of the context of, of Luca's other work, I think it really twins very well with Call Me By Your Name, not just because obviously it's got Timmy in there, but I mm-hmm. think there's a lot in the two of them about people who are trying to find themselves, come to terms with who they are as people, but also mm-hmm. like playing roles and playing yeah, as yeah, adults. Yeah. So I think there's a lot in the fact that, you know, Elio is someone that is on the cusp of adulthood, but thinks he's much more grown up and emotionally resilient but actually he Mm -hmm. isn't because he's just playing at being an adult but actually he's still a child and then I think a lot about like Lee and Marin when they're kind of having to play adult when they're in that domestic setting in particular Mm -hmm. and I think actually for me in terms of like Luca's work I I just found it fascinating that there were just little things where in um, Bones and All just shot wise and and throwaway lines and things where I was going like oh that 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 makes an interesting parallel or you could connect up dots and I do think it would be like it, they would make such an interesting like double bill pairing for that reason yeah oh god I'd love to see those together yeah we discussed hadn't we the kind of line where Lee says like am I a bad person and it kind of echoes. Oliver talking about them having been good so far and good people and that idea of what it means to be a good or a bad person Mm -hmm. and sort of the way you play society's roles as you say like whether that's a kind of domestic situation or whether it's like a queer relationship kind of you know what it means to be a good person or to do the right thing um, and the kind of the values that you have and the lifestyle you lead so yeah it's really interesting to see those parallels yeah, let's talk a bit more about the kind of fusion of genre mm-hmm. because it's 
I mean, I couldn't even tell you exactly if you had to choose a dominant genre for the film. I don't even know what that would be, but it's a kind of mix of coming of age drama, romance, American road trip movie, obviously a cannibal film. Um, what do you think of that? The way that I've been describing it to people, if if it's come up in conversation, is that I've been saying that it's a coming of age road drama. That because features that, just happens to feature cannibals, right? Yeah, because I don't necessarily <laughs> like you know you posited the question like is this a horror movie, um, and I would say like no. Mm. I mean, it's really it's interesting that you mention Suspiria and Lucas sort of dipping his toe in the kind of body mm. horror spectrum. I think it is a really interesting take on body body horror in that regard. It, I don't think it. I guess because it's so more over overt with its gore, um, mm. it doesn't hide away from that. And also because obviously Suspiria, just going back to that, there's lots of weird body horror in that, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it's fascinating to sort of see that that's something he's obviously really fascinated with because, like you say, he's got such a preoccupation with bodies. So it makes sense that he would venture in the direction of like horror. All all extremes, for better or for worse, whether they're beautiful or, you know, I don't know, despicable, basically. I don't know. I just don't think I would ever call it a horror film. However, I guess it mm. does do what, you know, you very eloquently mentioned on so many of our episodes before when we've addressed anything on the horror spectrum in that horror is obviously a way to reflect wider social issues and things mm. that are going on within society. And I think there's lots that you could read through the prism of a horror within Bones and All. But I think it is tricky. I mean, I feel like you're right in that it fuses so many things together but mm. I don't think it's weighted more heavily in one of those bits of the pie, you know? Yeah, no, no, yeah. They're equal sli- equal slices of pie. Yeah, no, I think you're so right. It's kind of, it's like, what's the main crux of the story? Like, you've got Marin on this journey of self-discovery to kind of find her mother, make sense of herself, find connection with someone like her, which is why her and Leah are drawn together. Um, and it's not just because they essentially suffer the same addiction it's because they exist on the fringes Mm -hmm. because they are haunted by their past they're transitioning to adulthood so they're kind of it's that growing into yourself as an adult and getting to know yourself and find connection and find sort of yourself sort of mirrored through other people Mm -hmm. and then you've got that first love romance of course the American road movie, as you say, across the Midwest with sort of really obvious allusions to sort of Badlands and sort of Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek and mm-hmm. um, everything from, I don't know, true romance to, you know, whatever, the setting Natural and the cinematography. Killers. Yeah, yeah all, all leans into, you know, a lot of those settings and cinematography and sort of the tropes. Um, and that ties into that sort of journey of self-discovery. And then you've got the, the horror... Which, as you say, like the moments you have of horror, which are actually quite sparse on second viewing, I was it wasn't expecting as bad more. As I thought, no. Yeah, but it's but it's very visceral when it's there. It doesn't mm. shy away. You can literally hear like the gristle on the bone, and you yeah. see a lot of blood. <laughs> but it's kind of a, I don't know. There's a there's a really interesting way in which it's treated, again as something that's very intimate. Uh-huh. Um, and I think the sort of seriousness and the intimacy of those moments kind of sort of the horror of it isn't I don't know what it is it's not 
the act itself, although cannibalism is kind of this ultimate taboo in society still, isn't it? But there's mm-hmm. something about being a viewer and watching them. I don't know. I feel like I'm encroaching on a situation, like a, a sacred situation that I shouldn't be privy to seeing. And that yeah, kind of is yeah. more stomach churning in a way. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think it's that slightly strange it's interesting that you mentioned obviously the fact that like cannibalism is a is a taboo rightfully so Mm. but it does feel like a strange intimate act that you're watching that you know you shouldn't be watching so it makes you uncomfortable as a result yeah it's like it's the i mean we've talked a lot and you've talked a lot before about the the intimacy of sharing a meal making and sharing Mm -hmm, a meal mm -hmm. but in this you know it's the the absolute intimacy between the eater and the eaten and people eating together and sort of being fully exposed to their their real and most vulnerable state i also think there's there's interesting parallels obviously to do with like the intimacy of, of 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 sex Mm. And then the intimacy of cannibalism in that way. Where yeah. It's like they're two sort of things that ultimately go on behind closed doors. Totally. And ultimately it does feel slightly strange, you know, being being privy to. Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking about how there's actually quite a few... Um, another film that I had thought a lot about when I was thinking about road trip movies and horror is Near Dark, which mm. has a lot of parallels yes. with this film as well. And then I was thinking about how vampirism and sex often go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. But cannibalism, especially in this film, is really akin to vampirism as well. Yep. Like yep. it's got that sexuality to it, yeah. that intimacy. All of the kind of tropes of sort of like teen vampires are kind of in this as well. I'm really glad that you brought that up because that's something that I'd sort of thought about as well. The fact that I get and again I get I think this just comes back to the fact that it is based on a YA novel and it had me thinking about the fact that there is an entire swathe of YA fiction that is about vampirism and teenagers and sex and this forbidden element and you know can only be seen after dark and everything's sort of shrouded in secrecy and it's really compelling Mm. and alluring and quite racy and I think it's so fascinating to sort of see that someone's taken this sort of like cannibalism and kind of switched it out. Yeah, it's, it's essentially a switch, isn't it? Yeah. In a lot of ways. Um, I think you could have probably told this story with vampires and it would almost be the same, maybe not completely, but... It, but they have the same it, They have yeah. the same sort of same take function, on... Same function, I guess. Yeah, yeah, same function. You've got the consumption, the need to, cons- to consume. Mm. It made me think a lot about um, the, you know, the Abel Ferrara film, The Addiction, that we watched yeah. a couple of mm. Halloweens ago. And, you know, they're people that are afflicted with vampirism, but they can they don't have to feed. They can kind of just philosophically zen themselves mm. out of doing it and then mm. they do it and yeah. that is enough to sustain them for a while so they this it's still innately within them but they've really learned to sort of iron it out of their behavior and it's really interesting to sort of think about the way that sort of marin and everyone in bones and all can kind of feed for a bit and then they're fine yeah and then they have yeah. to do it again because it's like a compulsion yeah it is and the more that they do it the harder it gets and then of course actually thinking of in in that line 
addiction narratives and vampirism are very sort of prolific mm-hmm. as well. And that kind of goes, you know, there's there's a, a big through line between cannibalism and addiction here as well. So it's well, just interesting the way it all kind of plays together. The addiction thing's fascinating as well. If you think about Sully's comment to Lee towards the end of the film where he says that he oh no sorry it's um michael stuhlbarg's character in that he says to lee Mm. he's like every junkie he's ever met yeah oh he does say that doesn't he god the the other thing actually you mentioned michael stuhlbarg and we'll talk about the other performances or all of the performances but one of the other horrifying things about this film isn't the gore and the like physical violence it's like the underlying, there's an underlying tension to all of it, to mm-hmm. this road trip, because, you know, you're living on the, the margins and you're embarking on this huge road trip, especially as a young woman, is kind of like scary enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other eaters that Marin meets, apart from Lee, are unfortunately all really fucking creepy middle-aged men. They are, aren't they? So there's something particularly terrifying about that as well and and you know anything is possible when you are vulnerable and you are literally traveling in the middle of open roads and fields so there's this kind of like real unease to the whole thing as well yeah yeah absolutely yeah it's like a shape-shifting film in terms of genre but Mm. it it sort of knits together quite well and it feels quite well it's obviously very time specific and i know we'll talk about that a bit more as well with you know two young people sort of existing on the fringes in sort of Reagan era America but you've also got it's quite a timeless story at the same time yeah so perfor- let's talk about performances so let's talk about Marin's character first played by Taylor Russell who's still quite a relative newcomer to the industry she starred in Waves directed by Trey Edward Schultz but that's kind of pretty much it in terms of sort of starring roles I guess um what did you think of Marin and her performance I feel like Taylor Russell is so quietly affecting I so much yeah I really really enjoyed Waves I feel like it was one of my favorite films of 2020 and and one of my strangely I mean, it was one of the only cinema-going experiences I had in 2020. I saw it right at oh, the God, start yeah, of the of year. Um, but I remember just going into that film being like, oh, I guess it'll be like, it's A24, like I'm sure, like it's got Lucas Hedges, like, you know, <laughs> I'll have a good time. And I remember being like really knocked for six by her in mm. particular because she'd sort of just come from nowhere and really caught me off guard. And I think she's just... I mean, I hadn't realised that she's 28 because she reads so much younger. And I think... She lo- she really does look... I mean, she's... I think she's supposed to be 18 maybe in this. Yeah, it and works she to her looks advantage. 18. Yeah, it works yeah. to her... The way she sort of comes across quite young works to her advantage in this because you sort of... Marin comes across as someone that's quite weary and that knows that her way of life and her existence in the world initially with her father is sort of she's on the fringes of society she's really low down the pecking order she she has to move from place to place but i get the impression that she's not entirely sure why because there are large patches of her life that she's just Mm. completely blocked out so you have this and she just conveys the fact that marin as a character is obviously carrying lots of emotional weighty things a lots of trauma is quite guarded perhaps about putting you know letting her you you know the film opens with her in school and kind of going to talk to one of her school Mm. friends who's trying to get her to go around for a sleepover and marin's just like no can't come my dad won't let me she seems Mm. quite reluctant and actually i just i can't think of any other young actor apart from maybe like zendaya that Mm. i think would have had that a same emotional resonance yeah 
it's quite an understated but like powerful performance, isn't it? She's yeah. a very Marin's a very sort of introverted and alienated character, as you say. She sort of doesn't know herself, doesn't understand her true nature. She sort of lacks stability in the form of well, in many forms, like if you take the cannibalism the cannibalism out of it, she's still a young woman who was left by her mother, mm-hmm. who's got a difficult relationship with her father. They're clearly very working class and they're moving around, as you say. There's like an inherent kind of queerness to her character, which I'm sure we'll talk about as well. There's all of these kind of conflicting things mm-hmm. that um, are leaving her feel kind of, you know, very unsettled. And she has this blank past because she kind it seems like she's basically she's been maybe she's been blacking out or she doesn't really she doesn't have any recollection of really having eaten people before no it feels Um, like a a, like an interesting like trauma response yeah absolutely through traumatic events they just black out the time her one support i guess at the time is her father Mm -hmm. this is a strained relationship he isn't like her. He doesn't understand her. And he he's weary as well because he yep. says something like not again or, you know, when she comes back from the sleepover, you get the sense that this happens over and over again. And then it's truly shocking to see him, to have him leave and to leave her with so little mm. because, I don't know, it just feels like you just can't imagine doing that with your own child, can you? But that's obviously a man who's pushed right to the edge. You get the impression as well that he's been trying to guide her through the world and everything that she's dealing with was for such a long time. Mm. And he's just reached his limit and almost needs freedom from it and, and probably feels that she's of an age because where she can just deal with it. Yeah, she can do her own thing. You get to a point, don't you? I think everyone learns that you've got to have your own boundaries. And mm. um, maybe if your child ends up eating other people, that might be a boundary. <laughs> But speaking of boundaries, though, actually, I think it's then interesting that she finds, I guess, a sense of stability and a sense of home through Lee. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of the first person after her father that really sticks up for her and looks out for her. And then she's learning her own boundaries through him based on the kind of shared values they have, what she is and isn't willing to do, Mm -hmm. what he will do. But she has quite a strong moral compass, doesn't she? So Mm -hmm. she kind of... There's definitely stuff that she will not do and well, she, she will not bring herself to do. She, see, she seems to operate still on the spectrum of what is right and what is wrong. Mm-hmm. Whereas Lee is obviously someone that has more lived experience and is just like, mm. it is literally, you know, fair game. Full buffet. It's survival, isn't yeah, it? I guess yeah, he sees it, it more survival. as survival. Yeah. Whereas she sees it more as an addiction. Well, you see that they're interestingly along the same kind of journey, but Lee is obviously so much more advanced yeah and he has that experience of having been through all of it and he i feel like mm. he does recognize that in Marin, in that like she's basically back at square one and he's like leaps and bounds ahead of it further ahead yeah they're quite an interesting contrast but yeah russell's amazing and i think she plays Marin beautifully like you say the way she's got that kind of furrowed brow she's very thoughtful yeah. but with a look you can kind of sense her her confusion and i don't know her you can just kind of almost tell what read into what she's thinking based on a look mm. i think she's phenomenal yeah so we'll talk about lee but who's the other kind of i guess Marin's the sort of front and center starring role in this and lee's the kind of the supporting actor played by timothy chalamet they're quite a contrast and they meet in indiana he is more attuned to the eater lifestyle he's sort of 
scrappy. He's leaning into it. Yeah, he's definitely, he's a bit maybe happy-go-lucky. He's he's embraced the lifestyle of an outsider mm-hmm. and he he feels very much like the the stereotype of the addict, I guess, yeah. in in this kind of filmmaking and he he essentially knows he can turn on the charm to get what he wants. Mm-hmm. Um and we see him put on that amazing performance to kiss, look it up, which is I feel like that's the sort of scene that Luca probably just gave Timothy and was like, do what you do what you want with it. That just felt like a Timothy scene. He does love a dancing, singing scene, doesn't he? Loves a musical number. He loves a musical number. So I was absolutely delighted when it was Timmy doing a Kiss song. It just felt absolutely on brand for him. Um, but what did you think of Lee? I just feel like... And I know we are predisposed to think that Timothy Chalamet can't help it. Is can't help it of the greatest of all time. But I just but be serious. I just don't know if there's any other actor that is so good at tuning in to a whole spectrum of emotions. I just feel like you so consistently feel off the screen every little thing he's grappling with yeah i think you're so right you can call him skinny you can call him a twink call him whatever you want but i will not let it be heard that he is a bad actor he's like, so ever. good it's ridiculous every single time we see him in something i do at the back of my mind think mm, i wonder if this will be the thing that he's shit in yeah. You know how, like, I mean, I've I've watched so many films by so many of my favourite actors and not all of them are ever good. Yeah. But I just feel like with Timmy, even in shit films, he's like... Don't look up. Best part. Love Timmy and he don't look up. In that. I just think Lee felt so well realised to me and I think it was for that reason is that Timmy was mm-hmm. just able to tune in to who this person was, why his experience in the world may have resulted in the behaviour that he mm-hmm. exhibits, how he treats other people, how he, you know, goes about the world. Mm-hmm. I just, from, you know, like he doesn't even turn up until about half an hour in, 45 mm-hmm. minutes in. Like it's not, he's not there off the bat. You know, we're sort of mm-hmm. sat waiting for him. I was surprised the first time that we saw it, actually how late in the film he turns mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Marin has to go on a bit of a journey to get to Lee. Yeah, and I just oh, he's just brilliant. You know, like he's I just, so good. Yeah, love him. I think as well that he gives such an incredible. Well, he gives an incredible performance in anything, and I think Lee, as you say, is such a well-rounded character here, and you get such a strong sense of, um. I guess the, the the many facets of his personality, like he does seem quite open and more charismatic than Marin. You get the sense that he is able to be maybe a bit manipulative to get what he wants, but also there's something quite truthful about him at the same time. And you get the sense of kind of his background and where maybe he's come from and what he's running to or away from. But for such a distinct character and presence and performance somehow i think timothy always manages to if he's not in the starring role he allows that other person and i don't mean allow as in he's gone like here after you but somehow he allows taylor russell to still be in the spotlight do you know what i mean she's absolutely front and center despite having quite a quiet 
performance and he like really allows that to shine he to me is the perfect like layup man mm. in a way like he's the person that is sort of helping set things up and then just lets the other person just follow through and do what they need to do in like yeah. a really beautiful way yeah i don't know how you manage to pull off a performance that is so striking without hogging the limelight it's exactly. a really interesting i don't know how he does it and i think maybe it's a bit of a testament to his character off camera well, as well I think as it on. would be really easy for someone that for him that is so young and has had such a lot of success within a short frame of time to just be like fuck this i'm gonna be the starring role yeah i'm just gonna take the limelight yeah okay i might be like third person in the bill but i'm just gonna run with this like it would yeah. be really easy for him to do that there are a lot of actors that just do that mm. and i feel like it's testament to maybe the way that he likes approaching his filmmaking in that like he is he does seem very collaborative with those that he is working with yeah absolutely it's the collaboration isn't it and the kind of generosity of his time and his kind of it's yeah i think it, you can really you can always really tell that just based even on his performance and being off camera. Yes. Um, I, the thing I liked about Lee in particular was the use of costume with him and the way that yes. he borrows clothes from his victims, like the man in the store in his hat, mm-hmm. and wears them like he's trying on their identities. And you yep. get this element of kind of costume and, as you say, going back to the idea of sort of performing at being a functional member of society Mm -hmm. he's got these weird outfits that don't quite fit together they're covering something but he's attempting to piece together like a sense of who he is based on his victims which i think is really cleverly done i think it's really well executed the costuming side of things with Mm. with all the characters in this i think but particularly lee for the reasons you've said and also i think it just really leans into the fact that like they do have a very transient on the road lifestyle and they don't have much money and actually i suppose Mm. for him it's well i need some shoes or i need a shirt i'm gonna take it and then it's like almost Mm. absorbing that person that he's just had this very intimate relationship with or interaction with and you can't imagine Marin doing the same no. thing. I don't think she would do the same thing. No. And I guess also there are contrasts because Marin doesn't have a family, no. whereas Lee does very much have a family. And it appears to be a family that want him, but he doesn't fit. Well, he seems to be again like an them, addict. He? Yeah, he has this. Yeah, he has this one good relationship with his sister, and she's kind of begging him always to come back, but it doesn't there's something about that that isn't working for him and mm-hmm. that he can't bring himself to stay home which is yeah really interesting and their their relationship Lee and Marin's relationship is very they meet at the grocery store and they're drawn together instinctively mm-hmm. I guess a because of that eater's sense of course because they yeah. can literally smell each other but also I don't know they obviously sense like a kinship and um something about each other there's a connection there based on lots of different reasons i think and you know lee has this sense of wanting to protect Marin, and Marin has this sense of him kind of i don't know teaching her and yeah that kind of thing yeah 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 and they and i guess they yeah they do have the same needs on a base level but they're also both outsiders so they kind of can't or they don't operate as part of their family unit they're both sort of sinking seeking something more um they're kind of hungry for connection belonging you know intimacy all of those puns 
And there was a, I read something in the New Yorker by Anthony Lane. I think it was a review in the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And that he, he said something that I really liked, um, which was uh, about their relationship together, which was the two of them are like a brace of beautiful scarecrows and they grab at moments of joy as if snatching purses. I, I just like that. the idea of a brace of beautiful scarecrows. I think that's so... Oh, I don't know. That just seems to nail it. I like that idea of the, the having to snatch happiness as well. Yeah, like little, yeah. Gathering up little scraps of it while they can. Mm, yeah, and just trying to. Yeah, I don't know. Trying to piece something together, knowing that it's probably going to run out. Yeah. Um. Let's talk about Sully because <laughs> he's the other big character in this film, and we talk about costume and things like that. And oh my god. So Mark Rylance's performance in this, I think, is the most unsettling thing by far of this film. It's horrible. It's really horrible. I mean, we meet Sully because he, I mean, literally sniffs Marin out. He can smell her. He's the first eater that she meets after mm. she leaves home. Yeah, and he's a, he's almost like a, a teacher figure, isn't he, well, initially? That's how he's posited initially, isn't yeah. it? That actually, he smells her out. He sort of makes her realise that she's not the only person in the world that is kind of grappling with all of this. Um, mm. But um, I just don't... Oh, there is just something that immediately off the bat, you are obviously encouraged to think about the fact that, like, this person is presenting himself as being, like, a nice, friendly, oh, you're the same as me, like, you need to... Well, let's go and get some food, like, I'll have a chat to you, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there's such an air of... Ooh, I don't know, discomfort around him. There's so much that's off. And I think <laughs> it's there's... completely off. It's just so off, man. It stinks. It's stinky. It's like his appearance. And again, the costume is amazing. He's got that like kind of jacket and the hat and the thing in his... Is it like a feather in his hat or something? Which for some reason, there's something about that feather that really disturbs me. It's like one of those Luca details that freaks me out. Bad vibes. It's the hair. Yeah, it's this weird like utilitarian jacket thing he's got going on. It's the fact that he's quite softly spoken, but he addresses himself in the third person, which is like fucking weird. Um, And as you say, he kind of... um, He's kind of like taking her under his wing and she knows instinctively that it's not right. I mean, not in the least because it's like a middle-aged dude hanging out with an 18-year-old girl, but she knows that there's something right, not right, but she's so, as you say, it's the first person that she's found any kind of um, similarity to, someone who lives her, like can understand a part of her that no one else can, Mm -hmm. that she almost goes against her her gut instinct at the beginning because she's trying to learn more and there's there's something to learn from her and it's like it's ignoring those or sort of yeah sort of pushing those red flags to the background isn't it well she goes against her better judgment doesn't she you can sort of tell it in her face that's why i was sort Mm. of saying about the fact that like you know her emotions she's very good at rendering her emotions that you can sort of tell that she's like absolutely bricking it but also Mm. is is sort of intrigued but also knows that Mm. she probably shouldn't go and do this yeah yeah and there's something particularly repulsive about watching them feed together with him in his pants in his little white pants i did not enjoy that stuff no or you get this you get this sense of them being like satiated animals mm. and they've got this, you know, they're it's in so this animalistic set. Yeah, and they're, you know, they are bearing their truth together, I guess. So there is something quite exposed about it. 
but it ju- it does just feel really, really wrong. It's gross. There's something about Mark Rylance generally as a person well not as a person because i think he's he seems like a nice person but like lovely chap there was always something about his performances that feel like oh that's how you've decided to do that oh that's how you're playing it okay yeah i remember thinking that about his performance in don't look up fuck i forgot he's in don't look up as well i remember thinking (laughs) about his performance in ready player one <laughs> like there was mm. just a few performances with him so much yeah. where i just think like oh okay that's a real choice and i really admire the commitment to it because you are really convincing me that you are this person that is so deeply unsettling mm. in a way that is just so clawing it's just ge- oh, just you, making yeah. me think about it it's just giving me the ick it's it's a massive ick isn't it it's a big fat ick big ick. um and also, with Sully's character in particular, you can never put your thumb on his motivations, no. especially with Marin. So initially, as you say, he almost plays the kind of, I don't know, the teacher, the instructor. But, you know, he doesn't he doesn't seem to understand that a middle-aged man hanging out with a young girl is quite inappropriate. No, or he does he know does that he? very well? He might do. Well, he sort of um, he sort of reads initially as this person that is perhaps like quite naive and doesn't really, yeah. you know, wouldn't really understand why it's a bad idea because he sort of sees no issue in it. Yeah, and there's definitely a case I think in this film of viewing that through the kind of prism of some people who exist on the outside of quote unquote accepted society or normal mm-hmm. society. If you're lonely, lonely can, loneliness can do a lot to you. And yeah. part of that can be that you can't read those social cues. Yes, absolutely. So he could quite simply not be able to read some of those social cues and he might be quite misunderstood. There's something that isolation can often do to your emotions and your way that you interact with people. Right, absolutely. And you kind of, I felt that way until Marin escapes on the bus from him after that first Mm. traction with her. And you see his face and he looks hurt, but he also looks furious. Yes. And there's this horrible sense of like, Nah, he's a he's going to come back at some point. And B, maybe there is more going on here. And like the you know, like the trophy rope of hair is disgusting. But is it a sign? You know, he was making out like it's some sort of reverent, you know, sign of remembrance for his victims. But or is it literally like the way he sells a trophy? That is so un- is it is just, just upsetting? A serial killer trophy? It's yeah, really, it's really like. I'm. He's just Jeffrey Dahmer. It's maybe. very, it's very serial killer collecting trophies, isn't it? Absolutely. It's just, and that horrible string of saliva Ooh, no is going to live with me. I mean, he does literally salivate over her. It's absolutely oh, minging. It's disgusting. Um, just a really powerful, powerful um, performance. But with the other, so the other performance, I wanted to touch on the supporting cast as well, which ordinarily you know you might not have time to say much about the supporting cast in these kinds of films but we've got this road trip movie with these brief glimpses of characters you meet on the way that kind of have their own little set pieces each so they essentially have a a scene in you know a scene each Mm -hmm. but they are scenes that leave a huge impression um what did you think of the supporting cast well 
It's always a delight to see Andre Holland, even if he's in something for like two seconds. Two se- I know. I wish we'd had more Andre the joy Holland. I, the joy I experienced the first time we saw this, and I had completely blacked out of my head that Andre Holland was in this. So I was like, oh my God, Andre Holland, lovely. And then obviously he just exits pretty quickly. You do get his narration (laughs) when when Marin is listening to the tapes that he's left for her. And he's got such a satisfying voice that I was like, actually, I'm fine with this. Beautiful voice. But it just reminded me why I I like him in in things. Interesting to see Chloe Sveeney here. Um, Obviously, she worked with Luca on We Are Who We Are. And it was interesting to sort of see her in a role that completely differs to that kind of strong sergeant major character that she played in that. I love her generally. So it was sort of interesting to sort of see her appear as Marin's mother, even though I think actually for me, that's where the one flaw of the film I have is, is in that performance and in that. Agree section of it that just didn't yeah. sit well with me for very no reasons. it's it sits it's odd uneasily with me as well actually that's my least favorite scene in this film i didn't like it the first time and then when we saw it for a second time i just was almost dreading it coming up because i was just like, oh god i don't want to have to do this again no it's a shame that scene isn't it i think that's the one that's least successful for me as well it's kind of it's horrifying, but probably not in the way that it's meant Luke to be. Intended. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and but essentially, the two things I want to talk about are Michael Stuhlberg and David Gordon Green. David Gordon Why Green. Why is David Gordon Green in this? Do you remember when we saw this? And I just we just looked at each other as like, is that David Gordon David Green? David Gordon Green, fresh from Halloween ends. What strange appearance. Yeah, Jake and Brad. Yeah, that's an interesting... And it's an amazing scene, isn't it? It's one of my favourite scenes in the whole film. I think it's contrast so wonderfully with Michael Stuhlberg's appearance in Call Me By Your Name and the role oh, that he has so in good. that film. Because he is so wonderful as Mr. Perlman. And, you know, I think so fondly of him and that's the speech that he gives at the end of Call Me By Your Name that everyone knows um, and how he's just such a wonderful warm inviting character and in this he's just like literally the opposite end of the spectrum and i swear to god i have not stopped thinking about him shirtless in those fucking overalls just oh the overalls like he is almost when we first saw this it took me quite a long time to suddenly go fuck that's michael stuhlberg through me because he's unrecognizable in this it Long is <laughs> terrifying fuck? and insidious and untrustworthy. Um, and as you say, like an amazing contrast to... He gives the kind of bones and all monologue that gives this film its title in yes, this film. Yes, he does. He does he? a monologue and it's such an interesting contrast to the monologue in Can We Buy Your Name, which is just brimming with kindness and love. <laughs> Such polar opposites. Whereas this combo... And Brad's a really interesting character. He's essentially like a cannibal groupie isn't he yeah basically and and this Um, was one of the things that i don't think i read into or picked up as much when we saw it the first time to the point where when we left the cinema on the second viewing when we went to see it in our in our city 
it was it was I was so relieved when I spoke to you afterwards when we left where I was like did I had I completely missed all of that and you were like yeah no I didn't and you said to me that it was only when Mike had pointed it out to you when you recorded Evo of Horror that that we just sort of entirely entirely missed because the sound was so abhorrent the entire subtext between those two men yeah absolutely and Jake says something really pointed about the piece of the body that he gives Brad to eat that just completely passed me by in the first film. I didn't hear it. I literally didn't hear it. No, I didn't hear it. And obviously that sits interestingly within that entire monologue that Michael Stuhlbarg is giving where he sort of talks about how Brad comes across him when he's sort of like, you know, buck naked feeling yeah. for a person and how he just watches and it just made me think of for some unknown reason my brain went to eight millimeter the really bad nicholas cage film but there's a lot <laughs> but a, there's a lot in there you know there's just this idea of, of people gathering to sort of watch really horrible sordid acts happen it's just something in it that i cannibalist dogging that's but, well essentially yeah it is isn't it <laughs> it is a little bit yeah um, amazing, amazing. There's not a bad. I don't think there's not a bad performance in this film. No, and I also think that for those people that have sort of ca- little cameo appearances, they don't outstay their welcome in a no, in a, that's in a very positive true. way. Yeah, you're totally right. Yeah. So the cinematography of this film is extremely beautiful. It's this kind of grainy, sun-kissed, filtered feel. Um, and we get these stunning shots of the kind of Midwestern landscape with the open fields and the farms, lots of road, as you say, it's a road trip movie, lots of monotony. Um, the opening shots of this film have a really distinct feel of a painting, which I think is very, again, very Luca. It's there are so a few Luca. of his films. It reminded me, again, of Call Me By Your Name. Oh, yeah, it's very similar, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, in terms of feel and that kind of... Um, multidisciplinary kind of interest that yeah. Luca has in like terms of art and interior design and painting and photography and all of those kinds of things. But yeah, it feels like it's it's so interesting to have a film that's set in America, as you say, rather than Italy, and to see Luca sort of dealing with uh, a setting that is essentially a slice of Americana and by way of sort of gas stations and diners and tiny towns. And I think Luca had talked of being inspired by the photographer William Eggleston, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, he sort of photographs the ordinary and the everyday and the Mm -hmm. mundane. Um, And that's like a real inspiration to him. But it's, I mean, it's stunning, isn't it? It's really beautifully shot. The cinematography of this is so, so breathtaking. I think you're right. It captures the vastness of that area within the United States so well. Like you've got those, especially like, I'm just thinking about the, like the wide shots of the plains. Yeah. Where, especially when like Marin and Leah sat sitting on the top of that sort of like hill looking out across. I feel like it, is really indicative of how good Luca is at establishing place and locations with like little shots. So you get like lots of little looks at buildings, small details around rooms. Like I said, it reminded me a lot of how he established the sort of setting, the Italian setting in Call Me By Your Name. But also he does Mm -hmm. it across the spectrum of his films. I think he just sort of does these like little snapshot kind of, you know, things you wouldn't necessarily... They are like photographs, aren't they? 
it doesn't surprise me actually that he cites um, being inspired by someone like William Eggleston actually because I think that that was what I was thinking about all of the kind of Mm. American photographers that do a lot of kind of charting of like rural remote areas Mm -hmm. around the Mm -hmm. United States and I think there's a real history of that just mostly because it's sort of I think you see often a lot of like big city photography you know big locations all of that stuff but I I, the stuff I always am really really fascinated is like everything that's in between and I think he does a really good job of capturing how isolated and barren a lot of those locations can be just really really well Absolutely. And actually, as you said, there are tons of similarities there in terms of sort of Luca's eye. But at the same time, there's quite a contrast with especially the trilogy of Desire that he did. So I Am Love, A Bigger Splash and Call Me By Your Name, which are snapshots of quite wealthier settings, I guess, quite vast tomes. And then you've got this contrast with yeah like very rural working class locate locations at a time where the kind of disparity between the poor and the wealthy was kind of you know widening i think we've got quite used to seeing him shoot films that are a bit more a either sort of sun-kissed and luxurious or i guess in the case of Suspiria, not so much but still feel kind of bigger i guess they're very european in their sensibilities Mm. Yeah. Uh, the Sight and Sound 100 Greatest Films of All Time list came out recently. It's a list they do every mm. 10 years. And Luca's selections were fascinating to me because obviously he is Italian. Um, so his perspective will skew more down the European spectrum. And they were like mm-hmm. largely all sort of Italian, French filmmakers. And I feel like this is why I found Bones and also fascinating actually is because it's, it's taking, you know, it's taking everything that he's really, really good at and putting it in a completely mm. different setting. And he's done, you know, bringing non-Europeans into a European setting on multiple occasions. That's what he's almost like known for at this point. So it's sort of interesting to kind of think about, you know, what happens when you actually physically take him out of those locations and put him in, the, in America. Yeah. I mean, he literally went kind of on tour for a month with David Kajanich and they kind of... David Kajanich is from the Midwest and so they went on uh, like a road trip together before filming this film so that Luca could kind of, I don't know, get a real sense of the people and the places and what America is outside of Hollywood because I guess that's the that's that's the only America that he probably knows and he's only just started getting to know that you know LA basically anyway that's why I actually find it fascinating that he has chosen to focus on this area of a, of a completely huge country when actually it would have been really easy for him to sort of do something that was set in New York or in Los Angeles yeah. or you know like a big major city it would have been so easy for him to sort of do a story that is set in those locations but obviously that's just not what mm. he's interested in and I think that it's sort of fascinating that he has just sort of literally jumped into the the middle of the country yeah so much and they're kind of got to see the long roads and the open fields and the tiny towns sort of interspersed with nothingness must be um yeah must be quite a a change of scene for him yeah (laughs) definitely if we talk about the themes and the storytelling of this film as we said there's a lot of sort of emotions and luke is very good with sort of talking about sort of quite universal experiences and emotions which make his films feel quite timeless in a way but this is also about 
It's about young people on the outside and they're trying to find connection and a sense of their identity, but it's also set in a very specific time and place, so late 80s, Reagan-era Midwestern America. What did you think of the kind of, yeah, the time and the the time and the setting, well, I guess specifically the time that this was set? I think it's a really interesting period of American history to sort of jump into. I do you think it would have been really easy for him to to sort of situate this film in a contemporary setting but i think mm. the thing that you benefit from is that you've got the entire historical context of what you know what, what it was like to be an american in the reagan era mm. but then you also remove the kind of more contemporary things that would make marin and lee's life's either easier or or harder to navigate so i don't know for for want of a better like social media mobile phones mobile phones yeah the internet um i feel like it's one of the last great eras where someone could really up sticks and disappear yeah and yeah that's so true you could be running from anything and and it will be so hard for people to find you and that for me is sort of fascinating because i think that like there's no way that you could even set this in like 2002 and have a similar you know i, I think lee and Marin's trajectories would be completely different can you imagine that would be that would be such a different yeah it'd be such a different film wouldn't it because you'd come with the baggage um, of like not only the, the the ease of accessibility to information being slightly different to mm. it would have been in the 80s but then you've also got you know completely different set of values and and yeah you know, all of the sort of baggage that comes with the what you mm. know the sort of 80s and everything that was going on there and that's where you get things like the queer subtext like the kind of aids analogy all of of you know those things yeah there's quite a few there's like in terms of analogy there's quite a lot going on here isn't there you mentioned the aids analogy there's the the fact that this is set during the the beginning of the opioid crisis mm-hmm. in america yeah um so cannibalism and the compulsion to eat flesh is obviously you know can be read as a metaphor for drug addiction mm-hmm. um i think lee talks at one point about that like after his first ever feed that absolute high and euphoria of after feeding and then facing the sort of subsequent sort of guilt and hunger afterwards i was gonna say i think that's why the historical setting works so well doesn't it because there's so it's such a rich tapestry of things that you can kind of read into that luca doesn't have to overtly present to you or the book doesn't have to overtly present to you but you can kind of go like oh okay well the historical context is this actually this Mm. is perhaps what this is about did you read that id interview i can't remember who it was by now with luca luca's absolutely fascinating because he is clearly i mean based on yeah the generosity of the actors and the people that work with him the people that really want to work with him he is clearly a very um generous and warm and person to get to know if you click with him and he um is meticulous in his work he's very talented i think he's quite intense and he's really um interviewers have like a really hard time with him and for one of those reasons is because he doesn't really want to talk about subtext in his films at all no which is baffling to me so the queer subtext in particular of this film 
is so there for me. I mean, multiple characters read as queer in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, we get it right at the beginning with Marin with her school friend at the sleepover. Oh, yeah. And you're building to this moment of climax. And it's a complete... I'm expecting a completely different moment of yeah, climax. Yeah, me too. I to was as happens, well. what happens, you yeah. know? And then we mentioned, you know, Jake and Brad and their relationship. And then we have this really key scene with Lee at the fair. So he's flirting with this young, gorgeous guy in one of the stalls and they convince each other, you know, they meet up later, they start to hook up and then Merrin watches as Lee basically waits until the man's guard is down and then kills him. Um, And there's this question of, you know, is it just a predatory tactic or does this, you know, is Lee attracted to men as well as women? So there's a real subtext there and it kind of links back to what we were saying about vampirism and how vampirism is also often presented as quite sort of sexually fluid and mm-hmm. cannibalism kind of seems to have the same reading here as well um yeah and Lucas like absolutely doesn't want to talk about it and I don't know whether it's just that he was just caught on a bad day at that moment but I just I find it very fascinating that he has no time I wonder if it comes from a place of just like not really wanting to explain the things that are very much there. Like I, I wonder if it comes from a place of just being like, I've literally given you everything. Do what you will with it. Because I think that if yeah. I was someone that kept getting asked about the subtext of anything I was working on, you almost don't want to mm. confirm it. Because I feel a bit like, well, you, yeah. For me. I would find it more fascinating. And obviously I can say this as someone that has not created anything, you know, that anyone would read subtext into. But I do find the idea of like being like, actually like read, read into it, whatever you want. If you read it and you go like, oh, that's about X, Y, Z, fine. If you, if someone else reads it and goes like, no, 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 it's actually about this, fine. Like You don't want to, yeah. You as the, the director obviously it. know what your intention is. And you mm. perhaps feel like you've prevent. It must be annoying if you feel like you've presented the story in a particular way in a, and then people are just really wanting you to go like, yeah, yeah, but is it actually <laughs> yeah. about this? Yeah, you're right, actually. And maybe it's simply that he is a man that I don't think feels the need to be polite in the way that, um, I don't know, some other people might. I think he just cuts... He just cuts it off if he doesn't want to talk about it, does he? He just doesn't take any shit. Um, but also it's his job, so it's just quite a funny... It's interesting, isn't it? It's an interesting back and forth that I feel like, yeah, you're right, it does often happen when he gets asked about stuff. Yeah. So before we wrap up and we talk very briefly about sort of Luca's, the rest of Luca's filmography, there was a couple of other things I wanted to touch on. One is the music and the sound design, because we've mentioned Trent and Atticus, um, and we it, it really is a beautiful score, and you said before that it's kind of... Is really understated. I think it's not what you'd initially expect from the both of them. Mm-hmm. It's tender, it's acoustic, it sort of feels like a, a, a blossoming love story or a kind of journey through sunny cornfields. But it's also, there are some darker, kind of creepier moments where it feels almost like a clock is ticking and things are gathering momentum which I think is very um unnerving and then we also get this amazing ballad out of Resna at the end which I think I think that moment the thing I think about with that moment with Lee begging Marin to eat him essentially whilst he's crying is that with anyone else depending on the choice of music that could almost be funny because it is 
it's very over the top, isn't it? Yeah. But the music fucking kills me. It's really just had me it's, bawling. It's the most sensitive companion to a scene that is just so grotesque in so yeah. so many ways. I think I find Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's involvement in this like to be just so interesting. I was reading an article earlier about. I think it was both Reznor and Ross sort of saying, you know, what Luca had sort of said to them in advance of them working on it. They'd sort of received mm. a final cut of the film with obviously without any music on it. And he'd sort of, I can't remember, I wish I could, I will find the article, it was on IndieWire, but it was basically he'd sort of just sort of give said like, oh, if you want to do a bit of guitar and like something, you know, jangly, <laughs> jangly something, but I'll just leave it up to jangly. you. Jangly. Yeah, it was some sort of like very Luca description of like vague, vague sort of, it was a, like a brief, but it was just so vague with it. Um, and I just think, I, you know, I I absolutely adore Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's score work. Obviously, they've worked with David Fincher a lot. And, you know, that's someone whose work we really mm. adore. And I, I, I often listen to their the music they've created for films while I'm working because it's sort of just quite nice ambient you know flowing background noise um get ready for but, the keyboards yeah yeah, yeah absolutely uh yeah listen to the social networking feeling like i'm mark zuckerberg um but i just feel like this is just so i don't know soft it's not soft but it's soft i know it's tender i think it's so tender and i think that it's interesting when you think about trent reznor atticus ross and nine inch nails tender isn't necessarily always the first thing that you would come up with or the no, majority of people no. wouldn't come up with yeah it feels tender and vulnerable in a way that you, like you say, you might not necessarily expect. No, I mean, there's also some other fantastic music needle drops in this film. Oh, and he, Luke is good for a needle drop, isn't he? Absolute the bangers. absolute audacity to use New Order in the way that he does in this film. I know. I think I cried the first time. I think I was just yeah. sat, sat silently welling up because he uses a Joy Division song earlier on in the film and then he brings in New Order and it's just like... Yeah. Oh, absolute catnip for me. Yeah, right. It just um, so and again, he's someone who's obviously very. It's it's funny that he would give um, Trent and Atticus such an open brief when he is someone who's like quite a a fan of his music and again quite meticulous in terms of like yeah the sounds and the and also the set the saying the word sound has just reminded me of the sound design in this as well. And the um, the gristle of <laughs> the literal gristle of yeah. hearing people eat that is it doesn't hold shocking. back, does it? it doesn't no, hold back. there are moments of just silence where you're hearing these people tuck in, and it is um, it's particularly galling and effective. It's very, uh, I mean, it's very, it's very sexual, isn't it? I think it just oh, can't bring back to what we were talking about at the beginning. Very wet and sexual. It totally is. It really is. Um, speaking of eating, the ending feels horribly inevitable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wanted to, I wanted your take on this actually, because I, obviously, I, I did not want Lee to meet the end that he did, but mm -hmm. I also, at the back of my mind, knew that like this all felt too good to be true. Marin's trajectory and the way that her life has gone, unfortunately, I just knew that this wasn't going to be the case. And I think you're purposefully lulled into a false sense of security, aren't you? Yeah, especially with their really, like, homely 
set up with kind of Lee cooking breakfast and was that domesticity in the kitchen and yeah it's kind of it's very beautiful and quite simple and they seem quite settled but at the end of the day these are two people that can't be normal and they can't live a typical functional life and Sully unfortunately Sully is the thing that ruins that but I think it was going to get ruined anyway somehow well this is my feeling on it as well as if it hadn't been Sully it would have been something else it would have been something else and for the purpose of Marin's journey she it uh, obviously it all neatly comes back to Jake's monologue around uh eating someone bones and all and how you you sort of fully realize yourself once you've done committed that kind of act so Marin sort of fully becomes herself finds herself completes that kind of journey what's well, a sin isn't it it's like you know sort of final thing yeah by consuming lee bones and all and obviously there's something very beautiful to that and very tragic about that um i was gonna say i think for me it, it's you know we've talked about how there's this sort of connection between like love and consumption and mm. how like infatuation and obsession twin really strangely with the idea of wanting to have someone wholly for yourself and i think that's interesting yeah. in their relationship and that they immediately become this like little unit and they spend all of their time together and they are one another's and and you know there's that wanting someone for yourself you know consuming them both physically emotionally like absorbing Mm. their entire energy and then here it obviously just manifests as like literally it was interesting the Mm. second time that we saw this i was thinking of um there's a line in where the wild things are where max is trying to leave the wild things and they said please don't go we'll eat you up we love you so and it's oh my like God, in, yeah. in the context of that book it's not meant to be like a threatening like these hideous monsters want to eat you and like kill you it's just like oh we love you so much i just want to uh, you know what i mean and this feels like a physical rendering. I bet that is the f- the first and only time that where the wild things are has been compared with bones and all yeah thanks i'm um, quite proud of that well done beautiful parallels there um no you're totally right you're totally right there's oh the other thing i wanted to mention actually about this scene is the other thing that we both missed because of the fucking sound oh my god and i've already i've already embarrassed myself with this because i went on evolution of horror and talked about how i had completely missed the the kind of the one of the big reveals at the end with um the hair rope and there are not only one there are two cues that i missed in this one i have no excuse for so there is lee's sister kayla has very very striking yellow hair and in sully's hair rope that um marin pulls out at the end there is a very striking rope of yellow you know a, a, a bit of yellow near the I end missed it new as well. edition. i completely missed that and then just in case i missed it uh, lee quite literally says he got kayla we didn't hear it we didn't hear it so i was on that <laughs> other podcast talking to mike going like yeah i totally didn't get that and we had people on twitter afterwards going like what the fuck you didn't that was screaming in you in like that was screaming in your face and you didn't get that so that that is my excuse the sound is, was awful he does mumble. i did not he's a mumbler 
So actually it's Timmy's fault, but also couldn't hear it. I can't believe that we missed that and we missed the implication that Jake let Brad eat the forbidden part. The forbidden <laughs> banana, yeah. The, yeah, yeah, exactly. It was those Great. things and those two things and there was something else can't remember now but anyway so i'm so glad we watched it again because we got we got some extras out of it do you think that she ate him bones and all yeah totes i would i would eat him up april i would eat him i mean you don't i I do know that you've been saying that for (laughs) seven years however long it's been truly would devour him super tasty i would say super super tasty uh great stuff so generally on second viewing i feel like you came you felt like this came together more i think there's just so much in it that i find fascinating to unpack and read into and think about in a, in a good way not in like a, a a bad way at all and i just had a good time it. with it i just had such <laughs> yeah. a good time with it i really has lingered with me and i've actually really loved discussing it with people um yeah and that's been like quite a p- fun part of having seen it early when we did and then sort of getting to experience this avalanche of people we know finally seeing it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been quite rewarding, hasn't it? And we always say this, that having films that, or anything really that you, you know, sometimes the conversation afterwards just enriches the experience so much more. And I've definitely found that with this. Yes, definitely. So I feel like that was a very fruitful discussion of Bones and All. I was very pleased it that was. we did that. I'm pleased. And I, yeah, I feel like we could have talked about that film forever, to be honest. But we, it was also a really good opportunity for us to do something that we wanted to do for a while, which is essentially rewatch and sort of discuss briefly um, Luca's filmography, starting with I Am Love. So there's two films that kind of precede I Am Love in Luca's film career. He's, a, you know, a, a documentary maker. He's a producer. He's a writer. He's he's done so much in his career already. But in terms of films, he had two films before I Am Love, which are The Protagonists and Melissa P. Both are not easy to get hold of, especially in the UK. You can't get them on streaming. I personally haven't seen them. No, neither have I. And The Protagonists in particular, I think, does not have good reviews. Mm. So... Front and centre, I will admit that I have not seen those two films um, and so we're not discussing them. We're kind of starting with I Am Love and the Desire Trilogy and kind of moving through from that. So yeah, it was just kind of an opportunity really for us to have a brief look back over his work, starting with I Am Love, which came out in 2009, which is the first in what Luca calls his Trilogy of Desire. And this is set in Milan around the year 2000. And this is Luca's second film with Tilda Swinton. They they um, worked together on the protagonists and they developed this film together over an 11-year period, which is such Isn't a long time. Isn't that wild? I know. Um, and essentially on rewatching this, I was just thinking, A, I was laughing and thinking how much this is just reminds me of Succession yes. in a kind of artistically rich soap opera yeah succession vibes we've got the recce family who are kind of learning that the family business is being passed on to the son and the grandson eduardo which is causing a real divide and a rift in the family meanwhile emma who is i think is tancredi tancredi's wife she she embarks on this affair with her son's friend antonio who's a chef 
So I guess there's this kind of between the strained business of the family and the tradition of the business and the, the, the kind of Italian family, you've got this affair between Emma and Antonio, which is really intense. And the film kind of builds in intensity until it reaches its climax. What do you think of this film? Are you a fan? I don't think we've ever discussed this film before. No, I mean, I didn't get a chance to rewatch it this time around um but it, i really i'm really interested and pleased actually that you picked up on that sort of succession oh parallel. so much it's like wealthy family and all their kind of sprawling relationships and slightly fraught goings on yeah it was interesting actually i watched barry linden recently and i'd forgotten oh that, yeah um, marissa berenson is in barry linden and she's obviously in i am love I com- i'd completely forgotten it when i was looking up like what else she'd been in i was like of course she's in i am love i do love and again we're going to talk at length about this because she appears so frequently i do love luca's relationship like working relationship and friendship with tilda so much i feel like he uses her so well yeah i mean she's she's a wonderful actress anyway but she gives such wonderful performances in his films doesn't she and the kind of suffocation she feels in her marriage contrasted with the like absolute freedom she experiences with Antonio is kind of I don't know it's just such a contrast here um and she is she's like she's just absolutely magnetizing as well I could just watch her I, I just think he just knows how to capture why she's just one of the best actresses yeah and Again, that this is a kind of collaborative effort and it's something that they've worked on together for 11 years is so lovely. I think it's a testament to their friendship, isn't it? Yeah, and there's, I don't know, there's nothing better than knowing that like art has been created in collaboration between people that kind of love each other. Yes. um, And work in unison together. I think there's something like very authentic about that that really comes across in films like these. And I was thinking, I did rewatch this last week last week i don't think i've watched it since it essentially came out really or it was very it was a very long time ago that i watched it i think it was like back in the blockbuster days and it's it was funny to look back having sort of got to know luca's work a lot more Mm. now and see a lot of the commonalities that we've already discussed in sort of with bones and all so the film opens with architectural shots of milan in the snow so you know again it's that sort of opening and that tighter place and we get to know the recce household like we get to know the furniture and the space kind of even before we get to know the people and it's got that beautiful sense of sort of interior design and you you spoke about how lucas films sort of often engage with buildings and spaces especially domestic spaces and homes yeah i feel like that's something that he often does at the beginning of his films actually is like before you see the people you see the places yeah and it's definitely true of bones and all isn't it because those the the way you were describing the painting opening when it Mm. pans out you see that they're just a selection of paintings that are on the wall at the school that marin goes to yeah exactly exactly and um i think they all have that kind of similarity and i know that he's um he's a director that does not want in any way to be predictable and he does not want people to expect something in particular from him and he doesn't want to repeat himself but at the same time I think he succeeds in you know doing lots of different things and surprising us as viewers with what you know his next projects but at the same time I do like that he has these these threads these like I, you know, this eye for detail, this sort of passion for the, the sort of control and meticulousness he has around sort of location and photography and music and costume, I think it, and the way it all adds up to like a very 
deliberately supposed to create a very emotional response in the viewer. Yeah, definitely. I think that there's a lot to be said that when a filmmaker's filmography does expand, there are like auteur type through lines that you begin to identify. And that's why I was going to ask you, actually, I wonder, like, was it interesting going back to this point, having essentially engaged with I don't know, 10, mm. 12 years, mm. perhaps longer of of Luca's filmography thereafter. Because I think mm. often about when I work my way through filmmakers' filmographies, if I do it in a way that ends up with me like working back, I yeah, always find yeah. it fascinating when you get to those early films and you see the origins of things that they become yeah. known for later on. I've done it so often with people like, like Paul Schrader, for example. If you mm-hmm. watch his early films and then you sort of watch those later ones where it's really obvious where he's got like the, the tick boxes and it's not that yeah. i'm saying that lucas tick boxy but it's just fascinating when you kind of like oh that's you can see like oh that's where the seeds were set or that's something that he did once that's like the and genesis he's gone, of, like yeah. oh that's something that i'm gonna keep doing mm, yeah so based on my viewing experience of his work this is obviously the first film chronologically of his that i i've seen and yeah there's totally those things and you know, I mean, I guess the direction obviously is going to, you, you can kind of see those parallels there. There's lots of wide shots in this film sort of following characters as they walk through the house. And then those are juxtaposed with those very close shots of like the back of the neck or the face. Like we're kind of spying from behind the scenes, I guess. And there's very intense camera work during the sex scene with Emma and Antonia outside. You've got that kind of like the garden and the bees and the sunshine and the bodies together. It's all very, very intense and heightened. Uh Other things that were, um, there's like a focus on food that are absolutely in all of his films um, from here onwards. So that sort of the loving preparation of meals, the desire of eating something kind of flavorful and beautiful, um, yep. of eating together. Like there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of food in this film and the the sort of the climax of this film for me, like the moment this film reaches its height is the, the reveal of, it's the big soup reveal. It's not actually Eduardo's accident afterwards. For me, it's the moment that Eduardo sees the soup and realises that Emma's been having this affair and it's mm-hmm. it's all re- revealed around this meal. Yeah. Um, so he's got a, yeah, he's got an obsession with food. He does like dining scenes, doesn't he? I think, yeah. I think about in Suspiria where they go for that meal all in the cafe, in the restaurant all of them together all everyone from the dance school yeah sat in there and then obviously you've got every single communal food experience in call me by your name plentiful and also in a bigger splash henry prepares a meal with the fish yes where he's in the kitchen cooking and stuffing the fish yep. for himself so there is there's a lot of food there's a lot of foodie stuff going on which i absolutely love and also housekeepers there's fucking housekeepers everywhere so the housekeeper plays quite a big part in i am love there's a lot of shots of the housekeepers going up you know about her daily domestic prep and then she helps emma to sort of pack and leave there's housekeepers in a bigger splash there's housekeepers in call me by your name so those three films in particular as a trilogy like there's something about i don't know domestic prep and like the figure of the housekeeper in those as well mm-hmm. which is yeah. kind of interesting and the way those characters interact with the you know the families that live in the household also lots of water and fountains and swimming pools yep which leads itself well onto um a bigger splash doesn't it? a bigger a bigger splat yeah splash i've just no one can see me i've just done like a little dive into the um swimming pool the only thing actually before we we go on to a bigger splash that i wanted to mention is the score for 
I Am Love, I think is probably my favourite thing about that film. So it features music from across John Adams's career. So Tilda and Luca apparently created this film with his music specifically in mind. And it's sort of oh, very, very grandiose and sweeping. And it sort of contrasts quite well against this story that feels quite small and nuclear because it's kind of a study of one family. And then you've got this really big kind of sweeping score. And then, of course, John Adams, there's a track of his that is the opener for Call Me By Your Name as well. So oh, yes, that's another commonality, another through line. Um, a bigger splash. I love a bigger splash. It's so good. Like I know objectively that we perhaps should not like Ralph Fiennes as much as... Yes, it's the Ralph Fiennes of it all, isn't it, unfortunately? But he's so good in this, though. He's fucking so good in this isn't he? he's like yeah he i mean tilda, tilda is amazing in it as well and i think there the contrast between those two sort of charismatic characters is really interesting but he is abs- as henry he is like absolutely magnetic for all the best and worst reasons i feel like you understand why they both fall within one another's orbit and why also their oh, yeah. relationship came to an end and how he almost just passes her over to yeah yeah oh that horrible passing over yeah and that dance scene where he's dancing to emotional rescue by the rolling stones is probably one of my favorite kind of musical sequences in a film it's so clever yeah and it's really reminiscent of kind of lee in bones and all and this kind of way that music allows you to sort of explore and perform yeah and then that made me think of um the scene with Mads in Another Round. And I was just thinking how much those scenes are just so memorable. Yeah, but it's an amazing scene. I just love... I mean, I've just said I love Tilda Swinton, but I think she's so good as Marianne. And I love that, like, obviously she's just not speaking for chunks of the film because of yeah. Marianne being on vocal rest after a surgery. Um, But it just leaves her to just do what Tilda is so good at, I think, which is just, like conveying she's another actress that i think is very good at like conveying emotions with like small throwaway looks or expressions or things like that and i think that's what she has to sort of like utilize that because she's not allowed to like say anything yeah yeah there's yeah there's a really interesting um theme around like verbal communication and how lacking it is in this film so as you say marianne's on voice rest marianne and paul are in italy but they don't speak italian um Penn does speak Italian, but pretends she doesn't to purposefully infuriate and frustrate and what make people stumble basically in front of her. Um, and then we get this kind of Paul being in recovery from addiction and suicide attempt, which we sort of mostly gather from sort of snatches of his interaction with objects like wine bottles, for example. Mm-hmm. We don't kind of hear about that more until later but there's this yeah there's this real like lack of verbal communication and then there's a lot of physical communication Mm -hmm. sort of front and center with pretty much everyone marion and paul marion and henry paul and pen this very weird dynamic between henry and pen as father and daughter well i i think there's there's lots of i found i found in a bigger splash it's interesting that you have like Marianne and, and Henry together as sort of like the older generation and then you have mm. like Penn and Paul who yeah. are like their their young equivalents almost. Yes, they are. Yeah. But this dynamic is obviously fractured because it's it's Marianne and Paul and Penn and Henry. It's not like it's 
Mm. You know, the two young people together throughout, obviously that is heavily implied, but I, I find that kind of, you know, generational divide fascinating. Um, yeah. How do you find Dakota Johnson in this film? Because I know that we are not the biggest fan. Famously, famously, very famously, I'm not a big fan of Dakota Johnson. You can call me an ugly cottage cheese ass or whatever it is people like to call me in the comments. Never forget. Uh, I don't love, sorry, I still don't love her. Um, I mean, she plays Penn well. I. It's think... not a bad performance at all. No. I think it's quite fitting of her kind of, I don't know, her presence, I guess. I think that Luca does know how to use her quite well. Yeah, yeah, I think you're probably right. And that's another sort of ongoing collaborative relationship yeah, which i find fascinating that that's absolutely sort of fascinating thing. that that's one that's come together but yeah you're right i think she's i think she's used for the right reasons in this film i don't i personally don't find her a great fit for suspiria but mm-hmm. i think she absolutely suits the role here and i think you're right uh and some of the other i mean we've we've talked about sort of some of the other commonalities and things and you've got this real yeah the physical the physicality and the body and you know i'd said bodies and sun lounges and all of that and people literally bonking in the swimming pool um you've got this kind of um weird it's kind of darkly comic in a way i guess this film like it's i think it, i would describe it as like a i hate using black comedy because i think it's a really reductive term but it is sort of isn't it i don't know there's Again, the feeling here is very intense. Whatever the feelings are, they are very intense. It's sort of psychologically intense, sexually intense, and you kind of don't know whether to laugh or feel disturbed, I guess. But it's, I don't know, when I'm re-watching it, I was struck by how funny, in a way, it is. I would say ultimately it's it's like it's not that Luca needs to have like this is his funniest film, but I ultimately think that A Bigger Splash is is probably his funniest yeah but it is it's it's funny it's not light-hearted but it is funny and you get that real uh flavor of sort of luca's eclectic taste in music again because there's brilliant use of sort of needle drops with the stones in particular um and you'd mentioned marianne's silent physical magnetism and then you've got henry's really exaggerated sort of loud overt he's so ott oh so much there's a bit where um there are lots of the camera really focuses on henry's mouth as he's running and running and running and talking and talking like a fucking motor and it really causes i don't know the tension really builds and it's like almost unbearable to watch and experience um he's yeah he's just absolutely he's like someone you want to experience and just couldn't sit in a room with at the same time yeah i don't think i could endure him for very long and then yeah that's another film that builds to like a very dark a very dark climax another death in a swimming pool no less i kind of weirdly i find i find more parallels i think there are similarities in various ways between I Am Love and A Bigger Splash. Mm-hmm. And then Call Me By Your Name kind of feels quite different. It's a bit. It's the outlier of that three, isn't it? I think it is. And I almost couldn't put my finger on why. Um, let's talk about Call Me By Your Name because that is the third of the Desire trilogy. We have talked about this film a lot. 
I did write down what can we say that we haven't said already. Oh God, yeah. I mean, we have. We've discussed it on the podcast a bunch. We, you know, we, you could talk about it forever. But we're kind of. It's another film that takes place in Italy. We're in Kramer. It's 1983, so it's we're in the 80s again, and we've got Elio and Oliver. So we've got a, a younger relationship that's kind of blooming instead. But we're at another gorgeous holiday home, and we've got this coming of age story between two young men, one of who is technically a teenager, and the focus lies on kind of Elio and his sexual awakening in the in the sunshine. And yeah, there feels like there's a kind of different intense. I mean, this is an insanely intense film but it feels like it has a different kind of intensity something more sweet and melancholy I guess yeah yeah I would completely agree with that I feel like it's it's tonally different isn't it yeah I am love feels more fraught in a way and a bigger splash feels kind of tightly wound like a sort of rubber band being stretched and stretched Mm. until it breaks and then here you've got yeah, sort of a slow build almost to that kind of first kiss between Elio and Oliver, which is still one of the most affecting things I think I've ever seen in cinema, for me personally. I feel like we've seen this film so many times and it doesn't, it doesn't hit any less hard, you know? No, which I'm really struck by. Yeah, so much. And also, I mean, Elio and Oliver are the most striking relationship in this film, but also it's a film about fathers and sons. and. Yes. The relationship between Elio and his father and that monologue at the end, it's just kind of breathtaking, really. It's why I thought a lot about calling by your name while we were watching mm. Bones and All, because I feel like, yeah. obviously, it sits within this other trilogy of, of Lucas. But for me, I just think that regardless of Timmy's presence, like I said, there are just so many like thematic parallels. I think, obviously, mm. because it is... both two love stories set in Mm. a similar time period about two people that are so wholly unsure of themselves Mm. but like are are giving into their desires yeah yeah absolutely there's oh my god same universe just different countries i yeah i really want to see these as a double bill that would definitely happen won't it somewhere will do it prince charles cinema let's do a double bill sounds great yeah there's like there's not much more I can say about Call Me By Your Name because I think we've just covered it so many times already. and I think we've made our feelings extremely clear. Yeah, I love it very much. Um, we also talked about Suspiria. We did. 2018 Suspiria um, back when we saw it at London Film Festival in 2018. Um, Suspiria was in production before Call Me By Your Name, which is... Again, quite a contrast. And I don't know, I think initially I would have thought like, oh, Luca really wanted to do something really different after Call Me By Your Name, but they were kind of happening at the same time. I remember reading about that around the time it came out and just finding that fascinating for that reason. A lot of hot and a lot of cold at once. And this is, of course, a remake or a sort of reimagining of Dario Argento's 77 cult film. Stars Tilda Swinton again, um, and she calls it a kind of cover version. We've got a screenplay by... David Kajanich, so he is back. Um, he wrote the screenplay for A Bigger Splash as well. And again, Luca and Tilda spoke of adapting this film for 20 years. Isn't so that wild? They have been working together. They've been besties for hella long time. And this is... It's really difficult because this is a film that I, I actually admire quite a lot. I think it 
works meticulously to try and treat the story and the themes with new eyes and it tries to achieve something quite vast i don't think it always works but there are some beautiful components so i feel like it's probably the least successful of lucas films i think it takes big swings doesn't it and i and i admire that a great deal i think that you're taking on quite a heavy mantle if you're attempting to remake you know like one of argento's most significant films Mm. um And I think, unfortunately, for that reason, I think it would never have lived up to the legacy of the original. No, Um, you're right. But I do think that it's fascinating to sort of see the Luca twist on it. I think a lot about, again, those shots that he does to sort of establish place and obviously it's set in Berlin. And it's it's quite a dark grey film compared to a lot of Luca's other work, isn't it? Like it's the one I think about in terms of colour grading it's just grey it's very dull and washed out very grey as you say which also contrasts so strongly with the kind of blood red luminosity of Dario Argento's version and also I think it captures really well that historical period that it's set in as well he really folds in the kind of historical backdrop of Mm. sort of pre-unification Germany and the Red Mm. Army faction and all of that kind of stuff yeah, and it's almost a film... I mean, I guess Bones and All does this a little bit, but in sort of contrast with the Desire trilogy, which I think feel more focused... I don't know, I I think I'd use the term nuclear, like they're... The, it, it, yeah, it's kind of focused in. This is obviously taking place in the dance school mm-hmm. um, and is quite focused on particular characters, but you do have this slightly wider view of sort of ideas of oppression and conflict yeah. of power and the way that sort of the past affects the present. It has, I feel like this film is more aware of its sort of historical setting in a way that I guess Bones and All is. I think As often well? Luca's work exists within these particular time frames, but you're yeah. not necessarily privy to them. Whereas I think with Suspiria, it's really overt and almost part of the narrative, like propelling the, the plot along. Yeah, and that is sort of for better and for worse, isn't it? Mm. I think it injects mm. a new level of storytelling into Argento's work, yeah. which is, again, kind of, I really respect it. And I think if you're going to, if you're going to remake something, you got to do something different with it. So Absolutely. that's great. But then there's this kind of added new storyline with Dr. Joseph Klemperer, who sort of investigates the dance company and he's sort of there to bear witness, but it's a sort of a bit of a, di- it's a bit of a distraction as well. It's it kind of clunky. introduced this whole, yeah, it is a bit clumpy and it feels, it sort of feels like it introduces this whole, it's like it's shoehorning in a kind of Holocaust narrative that I find it's just a bit, it's a bit much. Uh, it's, yeah. a bit, it's slightly confusing. I remember us talking about that a lot, actually, when we first saw it, and that that was the yeah. thing that for both of us just felt quite strange. Mm. But when you focus on Susie, again, it's a kind of another coming-of-age story, isn't mm. it? And yeah. I think yeah. Susie Bannon is from Ohio, which, of course, where oh, is where a lot of, of Bones and All is set. Yes. And she has this strong sense of sort of displacement and not yeah. really knowing herself and trying to find herself... And this is another film that deals with deals with bodies, but female bodies. So it's it's a kind of study of the female body and of the female grotesque and of stress and control on bodies. You've got the dance sequences, as you mentioned before, that are really very striking. 
They are, aren't um, they, visually? Yeah, really re- visually striking. And then the violence and the body horror, again, is quite sparse, but is absolutely mortifying when it happens. It's, it's really gross. I remember being really unsettled by it. Yeah, I'll never forget that first scene in the dance studio when we were at London Film Festival watching. I just couldn't believe my eyes, to be honest. It's hideous. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. And again, Tilda, I think, is the standout as Madame Blanc. Is the sort of, I don't know, she's got such a commanding presence. I think ultimately if she wasn't in it, I think the film wouldn't work for me at all. Yeah. And I think she does yeah. propel it along. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I think you're right in that Dakota Johnson isn't necessarily the best fit for the role. I liked Mia Goth in this. Oh yeah, Mia um, Goth is great in this. She is really, really good in it, isn't she? Um, But I just didn't, I do find Dakota Johnson quite hard work sometimes. Um, I know, discussed. I know. and I just I sort of felt Sorry, really everyone. that it just it I immediately was off put off yeah I mean I haven't rewatched this film recently um but I've seen it a few times and it's just never quite gelled um for me I'm very sorry to say I think the characters in this actually I think the main difference between this and the rest of Luca's filmography to date is that the characters feel like they're kept at a distance with this yes. especially Susie so it feels colder I don't connect with the characters in the same way. On the other hand, it's got a banging soundtrack by Tom York. So Isn't it good? I do love that. That was quite banger. good for me, actually, when that happened. Big, big, big yeah. Tom York fan. <laughs> big day for April. If you were going to rank the films that we've mentioned, mm-hmm. would you have a ranking from worst to best or preference least My order to best? of preference would be, obviously, Call Me By Your Name, be top... And I think I probably would put Bones and All second. And then I think a bigger splash, Suspiria, I Am Love. But then I think I think actually Suspiria and I Am Love are just on a level. I just yeah. like them less. It's not that I don't yeah. like them, I just like them less. Yeah, that's, do you know what, it's very similar. It was almost exactly the same as mine. I said, call me by your name, Bones and All, a bigger splash, I Am Love and then Suspiria, I think. I think if I'd rewatched I Am Love, actually, I think maybe I would have shifted it. I think I do not connect as strongly with I Am Love, but as the other, you know, three films that Mm -hmm. I prefer. But I think fundamentally Suspiria probably does have more flaws. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think it doesn't hold up as well under scrutiny as, as sort of the others would do, if that makes sense. I'm so excited for... I'm, I'm glad we got to talk about them, though. And I'd be really interested to see what other people think of Bones and All and also their experience of Luca's filmography so far. Although I don't care if people don't like him. It's been nice to talk about Luca more at length, actually. I think we've been uh, looking for an opportunity to go slightly long on him. Um, yeah. So it's been nice to sort of fill in those gaps of things that we haven't discussed before. Yeah, absolutely. So you can find us on Twitter, we're at the thirst and Instagram at the thirst pod, or you can drop us an email on the thirstpod at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought of anything that we discussed today. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And if you give us a nice review as well, it helps people find us more easily. Um, we will put some links on our blog and also check the show notes for some timestamps and any other information there as well. Uh, bye. Ciao.